Equity is brought to you by ExaCrunch, that prodigious TechCrunch paywall you keep running into. You can break through that paywall at a steep discount if you use the promo code equity. If you do, you'll get access to our best stuff and you'll make equity look really good internally at the same time. Enough of that, let's start the show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Danny Crichton and joining me today is Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, how are you today? Danny, I'm doing great because we are having a half equity reunion this weekend and I get to finally meet you and Grace in person. We are having a reunion. We are fully vaxxed. The whole TechCrunch staff is actually getting a picnic together somewhere in New York City. If you can find us, don't pitch us. <laughs> but we're going to meet each other outside, outdoors for the first time in 14 months, which is very exciting. But so much news. And I got to be honest, we were both on vacation. Alex, our normal co-host, is out sick today. I had food poisoning this week. So, like, I'm sick. I was on vacation. You were on vacation. We come back. The world has f***ing ended. <laughs> and we're going to bleep that out, I assume. But it has ended. Everything is up and to the right. Everything is down and to the left. So lots of stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about macro issues, including the pipeline burst, gas, Bitcoin crash, crypto crash. There's so many things up and down. We We're don't even know. We're just making things up at this point. <laughs> We're just making things up at this point. We're going to talk about short selling startups, a topic that every founder wants to know more about, I'm sure. Better.com is spacking. We're going to talk about SoftBank Vision Fund results. Positive news out of Indianapolis with 68 Capital, and then funding rounds for Blind, The Last Game Board, Just Women's Sports, and Moressier. So much to come on the program, but let's start with the bad news, or the news that's so chaotic that it's impossible to keep track of. Because this week, I got to tell you, I was on vacation for four or five days. I was down in Florida. While I was gone, the world went to hell. So in a couple of examples of this, we had the colony pipeline crisis, ransomware knocking out a major gas pipeline in the United States. Down in Florida, we actually had no gas. We actually struggled to get back to the airport because the gas stations did not have gas. Oh my God. There were lines. It was actually kind of a nightmare. Crypto prices crashing 15% overnight as we're recording this due to an Elon Musk tweet about Tesla. A ton of market news. The consumer price index rose in April, I believe, more than 4.5%, the largest since 2008. So massive inflation concerns. And then we have this real estate market stuff. Real estate stocks jumped hugely last year and then crashed in the last couple of months. So like, Natasha, how do you even begin to process? I mean, this is just the last three days. You're on vacation. You're just coming above water like I am. How do you handle all this? I was joking about this, but I, I feel like even though the first half of the pandemic was much more horrifying, sad news, layoffs on layoffs, a lot of shutdowns of companies, there felt at least like there was something to think about the current moment. Now it just feels like one day crypto is soaring and we're doing episodes about NFTs and how that was the appetizer to the future of everyone becoming a crypto owner to crypto crashing because the creator of Ethereum donated cryptocurrency worth $1.5 to nonprofits. And some consumers are viewing that as a move against the value of crypto. And so I, I joke that I feel like a lot of times I just, we can make up a headline and we'd probably get some scoops right. Not that we ever would because we are a reputable news organization, but some of this stuff just feels, I guess, too crazy to be true. <laughs> The way I see it is we're, we're sort of the, in this NFT economy. What is anything worth anymore? I mean, and part of the reason I think this is a problem is, you know, we used to have signal, right? Things were fundamentally valued. You based it off of revenues. It was very clear what things were worth, what a, what a home was worth, what a supply chain was doing. And, and in today's economy, everything is based off impressions, based off news stories, based off influence, based off Twitter, based off of Wall Street bets, as, as Alex would always bring up. And so like, 
you constantly have these huge battles because no one knows what anything is worth anymore. The crazy thing too, not to gas us up too much, but we are the journalists covering tech. We are some of the most knowledgeable people about the world of venture capital and startups. And to be lost is a signal in itself. <laughs> well, look, I have no signal. I, I know nothing. <laughs> That's what I always tell people. People are like, oh, don't you know everything about no code? I'm like, there are 500 no code companies worth like 500 billion or more at this point. Like, I have no idea. <laughs> a real message I sent Daryl yesterday, and I guess we can get into the TC weeds a little bit. But I was looking at different, bear with me, healthcare startups that help power the infrastructure of other telehealth services. And I named like five different companies. And I was like, I'm going crazy. I can't figure out the difference between all of these companies. And he was like, there actually just isn't any difference. And maybe one day there will be. But right now, investors need a place to put money. Founders think they can do it. There's a need for it. It was just a reminder to me that like, just because there's so much happening doesn't mean what's happening is necessarily super useful or new or different. I think one of the other challenges is this tech has expanded to more and more sectors. You know, we're just flooded. Like I, I got like a tech enabled perfume bottle pitch. Oh God. They're like, oh, we raised $25 million. I'm like, of course you raised $25 yeah. million. Who like, hasn't? <laughs> who hasn't, right? But look, one of the things that I think is going to be interesting is short selling. So no one likes shorts. Everyone wants to go long, et cetera. We've had short squeezes with Wall Street bets, all these sort of dynamics. But now there's a startup called CapLight which is trying to create a synthetic derivative product that will allow people to sort of short private startup stocks and basically beat the market if these stocks collapse. I think this is actually really interesting because part of the reason I feel like we don't have any signal in the markets anymore is because so much of the markets are driven by longs, right? We have yeah. more and more people coming in with ETFs and are just passive investors. We have a ton of folks who just don't short at all. And so there's no signal anymore of saying, look, this stock is overheated. 10 billion makes no sense for the price for this share. Like, I believe it's going to go down, but you can't trade because it's private. Right. And, you know, this company, it raised $1.7 million in pre-seed funding. Some investors were Clock Tower Ventures, Dash Fund, Susquehanna Private Equity Investments, and it was led by FinVC. And so I have so many questions here because it's betting that there's a venture-sized opportunity in betting against the fact that there are so many venture-sized opportunities out there that are getting funded. It's basically saying venture is kind of wrong right now. And we're going to raise venture to prove that, which is like this poetic, I think it's poetic karma. Shorts has always been super, super controversial in the startup community, right? Because fundamentally, you believe by shorting a company that's going to fail. And, and not only that it's going to fail, that you actually have a huge incentive to want it to fail. Right. And that seems very opposed to the ethos of startups. To give an example from just this morning, as we're recording this on Thursday, a short seller in Lemonade, the renter insurance, and now they're in a couple of other products, but a renter's insurance company here in New York City spread a, a research note saying that Lemonade had a website bug that exposed all the account information for its customers online. And so, you know, you get into this market where it's like, well, look, if I can find a patent infringement, if I can find a, a software vulnerability, if I can find some sort of business model process flaw, I can short the stock and knock out a startup, you know, instantaneously, even though it's not really creating any value in the process. Yeah. I mean, there has to be some snaps given to the fact that they're willing to go out on a ledge that a lot of people are scared of in just the general tech ecosystem because of its reputation. In the story that Connie wrote for us, one of the questions she asked is, what's stopping Carta from doing what you're doing? And the founder essentially said that, you know, a lot of future growth of Carta is betting that growth is part of all the company relationships it has within its Carta X tool. And Carta being like the place you go to kind of help start your company and, and handle your cap table. And so Carta can't turn around and really create a marketplace that allows institutions to short the same companies it helped start. 
And I thought that was a really good way of framing why the company isn't in a super competitive space. And that might be a big part of why it could potentially do well here. I think that's actually a really interesting point. I, I think we're going to see this more and more in fintech mm -hmm. across the board where they're just diametrically opposed models or brands or whatever you want to call it. But like, you know, Carta does not want to be the place where people go and say, your startup sucks. I'm betting against you. Right. Right. It's bad for its business. It's bad for its customers. It just can't do it. Right. It, it, it starts to create serious conflicts in its own business even though it probably could. It actually could own this market really well. It actually has better Easily. data than anyone down in this market. But to allow people to short through Carta harms all of its other business product relationships. So that, that's sort of, I think, the opportunity for Caplight long-term. I think this is one to watch. You know, we've talked a lot about alternative financing models. We've talked a lot about different ways startups are raising money. I just think it's a really interesting to see that there are now people investing in investing against startups, uh, it's sort it's like of a meta. new. We've achieved a new level. <laughs> it's a totally um, new level. But speaking of the big short, let's talk about online real estate. We talked about it at the top. You know, online real estate has had like the most turbulent year, right? Because we went through this process where no one could sell a home. You couldn't see a home. You couldn't visit it because right. of COVID restrictions. And but like, listen to this. So since mid March 2020, Zillow shares soared 700 percent, and then have shed 43 percent of their value in just the last three months. We've also seen Open Door shed 50% of its value from its highs earlier this year. Compass is now below the peg of its last private market valuation from last year. So like there's this huge wave and shift in the online real estate world where people were extremely, I think, positive that everything was going to go online. And now it seems to be receding quite a bit in the last two to three months. Yeah, I mean, there's a statistic we have here that says that just 1% of U.S. real estate transactions are conducted online, and that's per Open Door. And so the opportunity from just a data perspective is there. But Danny, do you think it's just culture that's stopping people? I feel like I'm missing something here. Like, why go back? I thought this was the new normal. I think people want to do it online. I think I think there's a couple of issues. One is having just watched a home sale over the last couple of weeks. Oh, yes. <laughs> there's so many pieces of the puzzle that have to be integrated together. There's so many people involved in a real estate transaction. It's actually kind of absurd. And not only are there so many components, but it's not like the same 40 people who all have to work on a deal, work on every deal each time, because you could actually automate that. The problem is that the inspector is different every time, the auditor is different every time, you know, right. the, the property zoning specialist is different every single time. It's like a, a scrimmage, right? It's like all these players kind of show up, they play, and then they disappear, and then it's a totally different game each time. And so it's to me, it's like one of these impossible markets to really make online. It'll be the last phase, right? Because everyone has to be integrated. Everyone needs an API and there's not a huge amount of incentive to make your work like super fungible and allow any inspector to just show up. You want to own that relationship with the real estate agent. So you actually have customers who have no incentive to really go online. Yeah. That said, having looked at a couple of places in the last year, Matterport, who does the 3D modeling of the houses and the apartments and stuff like that. Yeah. That technology is amazing, by the way. They're still cool plays. You're so right. I guess, yeah, it doesn't require as much as the average homeowner who's looking to sell to sign on. In order to work. Right. I do think online has a huge focus, particularly in a remote work world, but clearly the investors are falling back. Now, that gets us to an interesting story because Better.com, which is one of the major mortgage lenders, there's a bunch of these, announced this week that they're going to go public via SPAC at a 7.7 .7 billion post-money equity valuation. And that's a, a huge deal because earlier in the year, or maybe late last year, we learned that the company was trying to go public via IPO. 
There were uh, stories in Bloomberg and elsewhere that said that they were trying to go that way. And then they ended up in the SPAC world. So Natasha, like, what is driving companies to go from one to the other? Like, what are you seeing in the market today? Yeah, I mean, the way that Better was acting in the past six months maybe should have given some heads up that it was looking to go out faster than maybe a traditional IPO would have let it. So we know that the announcement to pursue a SPAC came just a month after it sold 500 million of its existing shares to SoftBank at a $6 billion valuation. And also in November, it raised a 200 million round at a four billion valuation. So maybe it was getting into a spot where it could look healthy enough and kind of skip the traditional hurdles. I, I don't want to you know, make all SPACs seem like they're just this last ditch effort to go to the public markets. But in a lot of cases, especially in something as volatile as home ownership and mortgage, it is a lot about timing. And so if they think that this is the time, then a SPAC is genuinely the best option more than a year from now. I think it's really interesting because when you think about the other real estate SPAC that gets a lot of attention, which was Open Door, yes. uh, which went to Chamath SPAC a couple months ago, you know, that was still a, a very original business model. Like it's very new. It's very hard to explain to investors on Wall Street. Like this is a, a platform that allows you to sell your home super fast. You click a button and like your home is sold. They take on a lot of the risk of selling it et cetera, et cetera. It's hard for folks to understand that this is mortgages. This is the most basic product you can offer. They may have some unique aspects to it, but like fundamentally it's a mortgage business and it's a great mortgage business. So some huge revenue growth numbers from 2020, we learned its origination on mortgages went from 5 billion in 2019 to 24 billion in 2020. Its insurance underwriting went from 1.2 billion in 2019 to 9.1 billion in 2020. So like you're talking about four to five X growth on origination, on insurance, it's almost nine X or eight X. So huge numbers. So you expect this to be an IPO. Right. And I think what's interesting is that for a successful company with serious numbers, they went the SPAC route. This is something I've been noticing and we've talked about a little bit was the general slowdown in SPAC formation. And so I think that adds another layer of surprise to better.com pursuing this route is that SPAC formation has slowed compared to this time last year. They still happen, but there's a little bit of a pause. And I, I don't know if that's just because people have gotten tired of it, but that is just another dynamic to consider here. It's not as hot as it was a year ago. Certainly formations aren't happening, but they are lingering, right? Like they're around. All the SPACs are, are searching for deals. And, right. and part of me wonders that with so many, you know, hundreds of SPACs just waiting in the woods to like clamp down and chaw down on a startup <laughs> that's like walking amiably on the, on the sidewalk, you know, there's a real opportunity for a company like Better to say, hey, you know, we just got valued at $6 billion very recently. We want a nice little premium on that, you know, a couple of weeks or months later. Let's just go find the SPAC who's willing to go do that deal at that valuation and kind of just get through it. So that's good news. And it's also good news for the Vision Fund because the yes. Vision Fund was a large investor, obviously, in Better.com. And we learned this week through its earnings that the Vision Fund is on a effing terror. You know, I think we've made a lot of jokes. Yes. Uh, we've, I, we have fund. to talk about it. We have to <laughs> put our tail between our legs and give SoftBank some credit. I think the headline in CNBC was SoftBank just shocked its critics by landing the biggest profit in the history of a Japanese company. It's funny to talk about profit in, in an investment asset return profit, right? This is a revenue profit. It's not like it's as a telco, which SoftBank is fundamentally, you know, it didn't just make $37 billion in profit, but it did make it on the Vision Fund. So after years of bad news on the Vision Fund, dozens of companies getting written off, Vision Fund had a couple of good wins. It had a win with Uber and DoorDash. And those were quite significant as well as NVIDIA oh, yeah. a long time ago in what's known as a pipe, private investment in public equities. 
And then this week, we learned that the Vision Fund has just done super well, particularly because of Coupon, the Korean e-commerce retailer, basically the Amazon of, of Korea. The company made an enormous profit. It was a very early investor in Coupon. You know, it, it sort of now is overcoming what, what we had dubbed the Valley of Coronavirus which is this massive deficit that it experienced over 2020 when a bunch of its stocks got kind of blasted in, in, in the private market. So what's next? Like, do we get it wrong on the Vision Fund? Were we making fun of it too much too early? Or, or <laughs> is it like they got lucky on Coupon and they're sort of making up? Well, two points. One, it's, I think it's important to remember that a lot of the Vision Fund's current gain is locked up in the stock market. It's not something that they have access to. And I believe it's you know, because it's tied to the stock market, which it, it itself, as this week has shown us, can be volatile. This could change. I mean, obviously, a win is a win, and I'm not going to take that away from them. But it's not like they have that money in hand just yet. And then, Danny, I was thinking of the piece you wrote a while back about the inverse J curve of SoftBank. And I think that saved us from being completely wrong. So remind people <laughs> what that was all about. <laughs> yeah, for those who don't remember, I had this, you know, there's, there's a classic model, the J curve, which is your losses come in First in a venture fund, and then your winners come really long term. So you have losses in the first five, six, seven years of fund, and then you start to go into the green as more and more of your winners sort of exit and you kind of make up the deficit. And I argued with SoftBank, it's sort of a weird bet because they were such late stage companies that it was like, it shouldn't take an eight year old company another 10 years to succeed. It can't. Right. You're, you're betting late. You're not an early stage right. better. And so I had this idea that like the winners were first and the losers will be kind of losses towards the end. I still think that that's somewhat right. We're now still seeing the winners. Part of the argument was like, it's been four or five years. The, the first Vision Fund was 2017. It's now 2021. We're almost to 2022. It's a growth stage fund. We're five years in. Like, when is the result? When are they going to come? And I, I think what we see now is the results are coming. As of now, the $100 billion or so Vision Fund is valued at $154 billion. So it's up 50% from its original value. It's distributed $22.3 billion to limited partners, according to our notes here. So like there is real return. I just feel five years in, in a growth stage fund, that's not that good. Based on where they were last year, it's insane. I don't know if you remember those graphs of like the unicorns falling into the valley of coronavirus <laughs> and now they are soon to reemerge and they have reemerged. I, I don't know if we got into the numbers, but I'll just run through them really quickly. On Wednesday, they reported a record of 4.0 trillion yen or 36.99 billion in vision fund profit from its fourth quarter investment on coupon. And that is compared to, if I'm correct, a year earlier, it posted a 962 billion yen loss. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so that turnaround, I think, will always make it look great. Obviously, we're talking about it right now in such a nice way. I think it'll give them some of the cred that they had lost in the past few years. Well, and the other cred before we move on is WeWork. Yes. As apparently back from the dead. I have thoughts. Marianne recently interviewed the company and, and apparently they're going back out to SPAC. So, so in the end, after losing like, what, $11 billion, at least theoretically, or investing... Sorry, not losing, investing $11 billion <laughs> into the morass that is WeWork. Um, oh something is coming out of it, and that might not be as much of a loss as we might have thought. But let's move forward from the Vision Fund to the complete opposite side of the spectrum, which is smaller dollars into places that are not WeWork NYC headquarters. Natasha, you talked to a firm called 68 Capital, which is doing a, a really interesting mission-driven fund structure. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah. So one piece of news that was actually fun to catch up on this week was a new fund, 68 Capital, launching their debut $20 million investment vehicle that's all about investing in early stage founders who are 
underrepresented and from the Midwest. It's a black woman-led VC firm founded by Kelly Jones, who actually was previously managing programs for tech stars. So we're seeing her go from tech stars to really, you know, starting to cut checks of her own to pre-seed companies. And they're going to invest 250K to 500K in 30 pre-seed to C stage companies into entrepreneurs, people of color, women, and other diverse communities. And I just think it's great. You know, when you think about the underinvestment in, in the Midwest and then multiply that by the underinvestment in these sort of communities, I mean, you're looking at one of the, I think, the toughest environments in context to possibly raise for startups. So to have them just go out and, and direct that exactly at that sort of problem, I think is amazing. What's with the name? What, why 68? They named it after a pivotal year for civil rights advocacy. And so we're again seeing it be part of their thesis from a branding perspective to show, look, we're committed to backing diverse founders. And Danny, I don't know if you remember this, but we did that three views early on about if geographic funds should be something that is continued to be kind of like that competitive advantage or maybe difference between funds. And I am starting to come back to thinking like a Midwest fund focused on underrepresented founders. I mean, that is very differentiated. And even though everyone's investing via Zoom, I think being explicit in Midwest matters so much at the pre-seed stage, which maybe we agreed on then too. But I, it just immediately reminded me of geographic-based venture capital. I think there's definitely a, an advantage, particularly the pre-seed stage, to being geographically focused, right? You yeah. need the most help. You need the most networks. You need the most contacts. And the reality is if you're at the pre-state stage and you're in the Midwest and some large, you know, coastal firm kind of invests in you, like they're just not going to spend time with you, right? It's very, very hard to, to do it with the distance, with not being local. I'm not saying it's impossible, but certainly it helps to have someone local to help you out and, and, and move the, the wheels forward, so to speak. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of signal, of course, when Benchmark or Andreessen jumps into a round, it says something to the average investor on any coast, anywhere. But I think signal from a founder is getting that GP who's based in Indianapolis, two neighborhoods away, and can actually walk with you when it comes to hiring your first PM. I just feel like that is something that from every investor I'm talking to, even if it's not like commonly talked about on Twitter, it's like we are definitely meeting in person and definitely prioritizing founders who we can walk with versus just Zoom with. Another app that got a funding round this week was a company called Blind. Blind is the online equivalent of the uh, traditional employee water cooler. So Blind is very popular among tech apps. Ironically, not very popular as far as I know outside of the tech industry, but somehow it has become the dominant app in Microsoft, Google, even Verizon Media, our, our parent company. And you know, as we were going through the announcements last week that were being bought out by Apollo, you know, Blind lit up with all kinds of news and rumors. And you have people in the finance department who like to uh, spread more information than they probably should. Um, that's the purpose of Blind is to give people raw, unfiltered information about their companies. Blind raised a 37 million Series C last week, led by South Korean venture firm Main Street Investment, along with Cisco Investments and Pavilion Capital. What's interesting is Blind, it's eight years in, I would say the growth is, is good, not great. It's a pseudonymous social network, which has always been very complicated to fundraise on because you can't really advertise to people, but it's verified. And that, that's sort of what's interesting is you know the people you're talking to actually are employed at the places that they say they're employed at. You just don't know who they are. And so a couple of interesting numbers, so 5 million verified users. And um, what's happened since the pandemic, because as you can imagine, that's influenced kind of the workplace chatter is people used to use Blind before work and after work or during commutes. And now they're using Blind sort of throughout the day. So usage has actually increased quite a bit. And so it, it's doing well. They hired a new uh, chief product officer, and they're focused on a new business model around talent and recruiting. Okay. Because one of the biggest categories that they get is, is folks looking for you know, specific engineer at a specific title at a specific geography. 
and they're like, you know, L5 software engineer AI Seattle, and they want to know who has offerings there. So they're hoping to be able to capture some of that intent and enter that into a working business model. Okay. I think you kind of answered my question then, because obviously Blind is one of those beloved companies that you use or hear of. I love looking at other companies and, and just asking my friends to tell me what's on, on their apps too. But when I saw it raise $37 million, I was like, for what? <laughs> Literally for what? It's, it's, and it's not a diss on them. It's, it's just more like, what can you actually use that much money for? It just feels like a lot of money for what it is. Danny, though, it sounds like recruitment might be its new investment. It sold recruitment as, as sort of a new approach. And, and look, it, it's one of these startups that it's so valuable to the people who use it. Totally. It, it's not necessarily the greatest growth story on the planet. It's been around a while. It actually owns an amazing demographic, which is basically rich engineers at Silicon Valley companies. I mean, it's actually an amazing demo. But then it can't really sell into the companies because you don't want the HR folks to be paying all the bills. There's a bunch of, this is sort of the, the direction the Glassdoor went down. And if you followed Glassdoor over the last couple of years, you know that it's gotten harder and harder to get any information and yeah. companies scrub their Glassdoor pages like crazy and you can pay for that. It's a reputation management service more than it is a <laughs> well open said. channel for social networks. So, you know, Blind is like in this really incredibly interesting strategic spot, but it's so hard to monetize. So this is one to watch because I think it's one of the more creative companies where they really have to figure out something new. Their new chief product officer, Yong Yuk, comes from um, Yelp, Intuit, Glassdoor. So actually has like a ton of experience. At exactly. He's like, <laughs> and he was an advisor to the company for four years. So he's like okay. one of these perfect people. We'll see if what they're able to come up with. But moving on, the last game board, this is super cool. Four million bucks fundraised, mostly through, I guess, crowdfunding um, with some folks. But tell us more, What what is the device and then who invested in it? The best way to understand the last game board is think of it as a touch screen that lets you play board games and is customizable. So maybe we can play Catan using this board one day and then in the next day, use it to play Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, that's not its current capabilities, but that's the vision for it. And I, I think it's interesting because it's betting that people want to be in person physically, but also when it comes to collaboration, want this like digital able to be manipulated service to play games. And so it's kind of like the bet on the hybrid when it comes to the future of game night. Tabletop board gaming is one of these categories that I only know because my husband is a major board gamer and I have 700 board games in the house. And if <laughs> we first did thing this on video, you. you would see a complete <laughs> surrounding of board games. That's probably a major fire hazard, but nonetheless, the board game community and tabletop gaming is huge. It's gotten massive. There's p massive PE deals. There's actually unicorn companies in the tabletop space. Tabletop Kickstarters is one of the most important Kickstarter categories in terms of volume. It is a massive, massive category. We have had to not go to meetups and to visit friends during the pandemic because it's very dangerous to go and play. And so we haven't been able to play. We've had to play online. We had to play with digital versions and they're not the same. They're just not the same kind of tactile feel, which is why you kind of play board games. Like you right. have this like social in-person experience. So you theoretically could get the best of both worlds. And I can't tell you enough how much this would excite me if we could replace 700 actual cardboard board games that are stacked on my walls with a single tablet that sits in the center of the table. Like that would be actually, I, it's, it's priced at $699. I would pay $5,000 because I think the board games <laughs> added up to, I think we're up to like $20,000 of board See, games spent in this thought, house. I thought you were going to make the complete opposite argument because I think there's so much, I mean, that I thought, at least by looking at your background, that it was you loving the aesthetic and genuinely like the art of a board game. I feel like that's at least my favorite part. Maybe I was projecting, but my favorite games are the ones that have that insane art and have this huge narrative around it. 
I mean, even Dungeons and Dragons, like I feel like I've played it once and I only enjoyed it because of kind of the visual and, and moving things around. And I don't know. I just feel like taking that away. It's just you're not playing a board game anymore. No, I, I think that's a great point. You know, the art is really important, right? We actually, we own the book, The Art and Arcana of Dungeons and Dragons. So there we, we are card-carrying nerds. If you own that book, that is, the, that is the card you need. There I'll is no other nerd card. I'll be getting this for my card. boyfriend for Christmas uh, this year. There, <laughs> there you go. But I will say the art is really important because it triggers the imagination. And right. I think the power of tabletop is the power to create imagination to folks. So the degree that the last game board can do that, I think it's super exciting. Let's move to another startup, though. Sports media. Are you a sports person, Danny Crichton? No, I, I, I think the, the Art and Arcana of Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> book on the shelf here is, is an indication enough of where I stand. See, I didn't want to generalize. <laughs> Look, I'm the, I'm the person who, as editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper, put the chess team at the I top of too. the sports page. <laughs> I, I, I put the chess team and the math team. <laughs> and, Editorial and independence. <laughs> that That's exactly, you know, when you're an editor, you get to pick where the headlines go. But um, but sports media obviously has been a huge category. Everything from, from Deadspin has been in the news, to Bleacher Report, and obviously at The Athletic having huge success over the last couple of years. But Natasha, there's uh, another company coming in that's doing something a little bit unique. What's going on there? Just Women's Sports has raised $3.5 million in seed funding, and it's a platform that's basically only dedicated to covering women's sports. The statistic is that even though there's a 50-50 split when it comes to sports participation between males and females, only 4% of coverage is going to females. And as it was put in the story by Insider, I mean, I think that is by definition a venture scale opportunity backing a media company that's looking at something severely under-tapped and under-reported on. Seeing that be the latest media investment, I wish I guessed it earlier, but that makes a lot of sense. Well, first of all, talking about names, I mean, most direct name we've ever read in, in some time. <laughs> that's uh, it. Just, Just Women's Sports tells you exactly what it is on the till. But founded by uh, Haley Rosen, who played professional soccer, 27-year-old Stanford alum. And it's not surprising because Stanford, my alma mater, has always had a huge name in women's sports. And so, you know, it's one of these categories where I think the big national publications never have the budgets. They always focus on the big teams. And that doesn't just apply to like men versus women. There's also a variety of other sports, right? You, just, you get beyond football, baseball, basketball, right. you know, it, it declines very rapidly. So I, I think it's amazing to see new categories like this where you can say, look, there are people who just want to read this. You know, in the LGBT community, Outsports was a major brand. I believe they're owned by one of the like Vox Network or one of these that was just focused on LGBT athletes. And so when you have these large media categories like sports, you know, there really is a way to bring identity and media together in a way that I think makes a lot of sense. Right. And one thing that's not talked about too much in terms of pandemic side effects on startups is that, you know, women's sports found a way to make sense and work during the pandemic. In 2020, the WNBA saw a 68% increase in its regular season audience and, you know, 30% more engagement across social media. And so it's not like they're betting on something that's not being proven right now. We're beyond just, as you mentioned, like just that they participate so they should be covered. It's, people are interested. And for that reason, um, why not bet on more of that interest happening as time goes on? I think that's exactly right. And look, talking about the complete opposite side of the spectrum, academic conferences. We had to end on this note. We had, we had it. Well, we, <laughs> <laughs> so going from the jocks over to the, the nerds and the labs. We have one more final funding round that you covered, Natasha, a, yes. a company we were debating how to call this. We always get stuck in names in this show. I complain about it regularly. Um, we never seem to avoid it. But I guess we're going with Moressier. Yes, Moressier. We're going with Moressier. What are they up to and what are they up to? Yeah, so they raised $18 million in a Series A round led by Owl Ventures. 
<laughs> Why are you laughing? What are they up to and what are they up to? <laughs> what are you doing and what the hell are you doing? <laughs> well, Morassier raised a $18 million Series A round led by Owl Ventures, which is the biggest edtech fund out there. And they are a virtual conferencing and publishing platform specifically for the academic and scientific community. Their whole pitch is we want the experience of a conference to feel as cutting edge as the research in it. Because right now, a lot of the peer review process, a lot of the even application to present research happens on Excel sheets and Google Docs. And so Mauricier is like hopping for just academics handling the peer review process, handling research aggregation and dissemination. And even, which I think is really interesting, showing analytics post-conference on what research was viewed and how was it viewed and, and, and tracking that more smartly. And so it's one of those Zoom for X companies that popped off recently. And Zoom for EdTech, what you've written about. I think, look, if you've ever been to an academic conference, I used to be a PhD student. And uh, I'll tell you, it's the only place you'll ever be where the nap pod is like around you at all times, right? You don't need a nap pod because you can just nap at any given oh, time, no. given what's going on at these conferences. So what, what interests me is twofold. One, they want to make these conferences feel cutting edge, right? You're not just walking a big exhibit hall with a bunch of posters right. trying to understand what's going on. Like you can actually maybe have a feed, have things that get directed towards you, have things that are recommended so people can see what what's exciting beyond like, wow, there are 20 interest, you know, people lined up over at the poster over there. Let's walk over and see what's going on. And then second, I just think this is a great example of where, yes, there are general use case tools like Zoom or Hopin, but there's also these markets where they have unique dynamics, they have unique applications, similar to Moressier, but like in our world in TechCrunch, we have Battlefield. We have a bunch of unique application, I guess you would call it no-code tools designed to process Battlefield applications, make sure we're selecting the right founders, give them guidance and get them on stage for Disrupt, you know, in a couple months. We need a unique tool, like Hopin doesn't do all that. And and we built that out in custom, but it would be amazing if a startup did that. So when those patterns show up, I think we're going to see more and more of these very, very vertically focused companies taking on bigger categories. But that is our show this week. My God, we survived this without Alex. Um, we survived how. this after both of us were on vacation and facts. Somehow <laughs> we're through it. That's Equity for Friday, May 14th. Thank you so much, Natas, for joining. Tune in next week for Alex. He'll be back on Monday. Thanks.